All right, if you could turn to Psalm 100. We didn't jump over that many this week. It's a short psalm, but it is jam-packed with stuff, so I don't know how long it'll take me. <laughs> you might look at it and go, oh, it's short. Steve will be done for... I have no idea what's going to happen. No idea. So, anyway. All right. Let's hear the word of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Glorious God and Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know You and Your Son better. That we might know You better through Your Son. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know the hope to which You have called us, the riches of Your glorious inheritance in the saints, as well as Your incomparably great power for us who believe. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who gave Himself for us, who also gives Himself to us, and through us, the world. Amen. I've been binge-watching a particular show. And what's unusual about this show is that it is about England during the Danish or Viking um, invasions. And, uh, and so you've got, you know, battles and that kind of stuff. But part of what's going on in the background of this show, which really amused, no, interested me, was that the Saxons and some of the Britons were trying to convert the Danes. Of course, the Danish were holding to the worship of Thor, not the guy you see in the movies, but uh, something a little different. Okay, uh, They're worshiping Thor, and so they're viewed as heathens by the Saxons. And so the Saxons are trying to convert them. And so there are a number of these conversations throughout the first season where some monk is trying to explain Christianity to one of the Vikings. And it seems that inevitably where the monk goes is to the question of power. Why should we worship? Why should you Vikings worship this God that we worship is because of his power, his ability to perform miracles, and what it usually does is it fell on deaf ears. Because the Vikings interpreted power as the capacity to defeat your enemies and plunder their goods. And they were doing that quite nicely with the help of their God, 
And the God of the Saxons didn't seem to be helping them stop the pillaging and the defeats. And so, in my brain, I started thinking. What is it that we present to people as the rationale to come to worship and to worship Christ? What do we present? In some, in some churches, they present power, health, and wealth. You see the signs at some churches, and they're promising a good time. If you see other signs, cool band, hot java. What are we doing? This psalm includes a summons to the nations. And I believe that the basis for that summons is important for us as we think about summoning the people around us to worship. Facebook seems to never fail to remind me that within a three-mile radius of this location, there are 72,000 people. You got it. 72,000 people, many of whom have never heard or have heard really messed up versions of Christianity. So we have a lot of work to do. Not just us at Desert Springs, but faithful churches in this area. There are many thousands of people that need to hear things like this psalm. Our big idea this morning is that to draw near to God for He is good. As we look at this psalm, let's first kind of lay out a little bit of the structure of the psalm. Uh, I think the ESV and other translations do us a service by laying out this in terms of four stanzas because it creates this idea, we talked about this in Sunday school, the chiasm, the idea of, the, of, of structure, A, B, A prime, B prime, parallelism. And so the first and the third stanzas are really filled with commands to come and worship. They're calls to worship, whereas stanzas two and four seem to be the rationale or the justification for coming to worship. They're about who God is with respect to us. That seems to be the overall structure of the psalm. That's guiding me in terms of how I look at the psalm, and that's why we have four points today instead of the usual Protestant three-point sermon. Okay? Blame the psalm. Blame God who wrote the psalm for this. The first stanza really directs us, I think, to worship and work for God with joy. We are to worship we are to work for God with joy. This psalm begins, this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving, and it starts essentially with three rapid fire commands by the singers. There is a great economy of words that is here. It's just like boom, boom, boom. As some wish I had an economy of words. It starts off with make a joyful noise. 
This has the idea of sort of the shout of acclamation. It's the political season. We'll move away from, from sports for a day. It's the political season. So think of a rally where you're shouting in joy because this, the candidate you want has arrived. Or the candidate you want has been nominated. Most of us probably haven't had that feeling <laughs> any time recently. <laughs> okay. So maybe a different image. VE Day. Remember the pictures, the classic pictures of the celebrations that took place when the, the war against Germany and Europe was done. And how the people were filling, were filling the streets. They were shouting, the boys were going to come back home. The fathers were coming back home. The joy, the acclamation, that's the picture of people who are gathered together corporately and are filled with joy and have this acclamation that rings out well beyond the temple because they're excited about who God is and they have the privilege to be in His presence. Why is it a joyful noise? I love Spurgeon. Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with His nature, His acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for His mercies. And so our joy as we come to worship is intended to be a reflection of the fact that God in Himself is forever blessed and forever joyful. Even though... We sin. We don't destroy His blessedness. And so the afflictions that we experience on earth should not destroy our blessedness in union with Jesus Christ. We can still come with joy even when we're hurting. Even when we're sorrowful. Even when we're broken. Because of who He is and that we are joined to Him forever. Now this call to joy, to make this joyful noise, is for all the earth. It's not just for faithful Israel. There's an evangelistic thrust that seems to come through in the beginning of this psalm. If your vision is just for the present people of God to come and worship with joy, your vision is too small. Your vision needs to be expanded by the Scriptures. This is a reflection of the Abrahamic blessing from, from Genesis 15, uh, 12. Almost got my Abrahamic blessings messed up. Okay. That God was going to bless Abraham and make him a blessing to the nations. And so there is a, that in itself is a reflection of what we find in Genesis 3 with the promise of the seed of the woman who's going to come and break the head of the serpent that's joined in there together. This blessing is not just going to be for Abraham's seed physically, it is going to be for the nations. They're going to be blessed 
through Abraham, through Abraham's seed. We see this reflected even as the reading we had from uh, Micah chapter 4. That all of the nations were streaming to Mount Zion. We see this fulfilled in Revelation 21, the reading that we had. The nations are bringing their glory into the presence of God in the new Jerusalem that has descended. That this promise that this, that they had in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is taking place even now as Gentiles flood to Jesus. And so evangelism, in part, is calling people to come and to worship the Lord. In other words, if we think of it in terms of this psalm, it's an invitation to joy. That sounds very John Piperish, doesn't it? That's because of passages like this. We are inviting them to joy, but a profoundly different joy than what the world calls them to. We'll get back to that in just a bit. The second command comes out, serve the Lord with gladness. You see, joy isn't just for worship. Joy is also for work. This word, serve, is significant in that it has this dual meaning of worship and work. And in the context in which we first see this word, that is significant because we first see this word in the Garden of Eden right before God makes Adam and places him in the Garden. There is no one to cultivate, till, or work the soil. And so this word is used repeatedly in chapter 2 of Genesis to refer to that which Adam is to do. And so when Adam was working the land, he's also worshiping. It was an act of worship in and of itself, this work that he did. But what happens is, unfortunately, when sin comes, or came and keeps coming, it separates work and worship, such that we, we see a disconnect, unfortunately, between what we do on Sunday morning and what we do the rest of the week. We don't begin to, we, we forget that how we work is meant to be an act of worship to our God. So whether you're at Raytheon or TEP or anywhere else, Thistle and Green, your work is intended to be an act of worship to our God. Worship, precisely because its work is part of the creation mandate. It's part of that idea of subduing the earth and ruling over it. And so they're joined together, and here we see uh, that the psalm is reconnecting them for us. So that we see that they do still belong together. 
and that we need to reintegrate them. That the gospel essentially reunites them so that we become more and more whole in how we approach life. And the third command that's here, come into his presence with singing. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a second. What happened when they sinned? First, they ran from God's presence. They hid from God. They heard Him coming and they, they went hiding in the bushes. And of course, we cannot hide from God ultimately. He comes looking in the bushes for us. Okay, But that wasn't the end of the story. After he gave them clothing and after he pronounced the curse upon them, but also pronounced the promise of the gospel to them, they were banished from the garden. The angel with the flaming sword is placed so they can't sneak back into the garden apart from the the mediator that God's going to send, the seed of the woman who is Christ himself. And so part of what this psalm, I think, leads us into is the reality of being back in the presence of God, restoration, reconciliation, and of course we understand that this only happens through Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ that we're welcomed back into the presence of God for worship with singing, not an expectation of judgment. You see, apart from Jesus, we may be summoned into the presence of God, but it's not going to go well. It's like when you were a kid, or if you still are a kid, and they said to the teacher, please send Steve Cavallaro to the office. (laughs) You did not expect anything good if you were summoned to the office. And so acts of worship are not confined to singing, but really to a life of joyful service because of God. Secondly, let us confess that He is our Creator and our Shepherd. Okay, The second stanza is meant to inform the first one. This is why we have the joy. This is why we're able to come into His presence. But it does start with a command. The world was to know something. And in this instance, it means that they were to confess something. They were to acknowledge something. And the thing they were to confess and acknowledge was that the Lord, or Yahweh, was God. Now, if you're speaking to the nations, what you're saying is that the Lord is God, Baal is not God. And so we see uh, in the show that I've been watching the rather lame attempts essentially to tell the Danes that Jesus was God and that Thor was not God. And so there's, in the summons to worship, there's also a summons to leave. Abraham, when he was called in Genesis 12, had to leave behind the gods of his father. And we learn in other places of Scripture that his father worshipped the moon god. 
He had to leave that. What's significant is that usually the gods of the nations were corrupt. And so their worship was corrupt. And as we think about this today, I don't think anyone's worshiping Thor today, and no one's worshiping Baal today, but that does not mean that there are not idols that people need to forsake today. Some people worship politics or politicians. Some people, and this is one of my temptations, sports. I had a survey on the phone the other day. I had to think about this. The sports have too much of a hold on my life. Money. Music. There are many kinds of things that can root in our hearts that become more important than God and we worship and serve them even though we don't realize that. And what usually happens is that they lead us into corruption. Let's think of sports. I think one of the reasons I imagine anyway that I enjoy sports in moderation is that I'm not tailgating every Saturday or Sunday. I'm not lubed up before I go into the stadium. I'm not one of those people that by the time the fifth inning comes around is already half in the bag or completely gone and is hurling all sorts of vile words at people. I can enjoy the game, but I don't have to denigrate the opponent. But when it's your God and your team has to win, then you begin to attack the opponent. It's the same thing in politics. If your person has to win, you cannot be rational in discussing it with anyone else, but you inevitably will end up denigrating people and calling them names because they disagree with you. Worship of false gods corrupts us corrupts the people around us. And so when we call them to acknowledge that He is the Lord, we're calling them out of their corruption. The psalmist says that He made us. He made all of humanity through Adam, then through Noah. But God didn't stop there. He also made Israel through Abraham. God keeps making a people for Himself. Paul relied back on this thought when he goes at Mars Hill and speaks in Acts 17, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwellings. God did that. God accomplished that. You're, you don't live where you live by your own volition, ultimately. You were not born where you were born of your own volition, ultimately. God did that in His providence. 
and his control. Now, right there, smack dab in the middle of verse 3, we have a problem. If you're reading the ESV, it says, It is he who made us, and we are his. Some other versions have another statement. But if you look at the ESV and see that nice little footnote, it says the variant would be, and not we, ourselves. Okay? I usually don't bring Hebrew into the pulpit. I'm not going to bring a whole lot of Hebrew into the pulpit today. L-O. That's what it is. And depending on the little squiggly marks that are around it, it can either mean not or his. And so that's why you have two different translations of that phrase. And one says that we didn't make ourselves a negative sort of uh, comment. And the other has a more positive spin to it, the affirmation, we're his. We belong to him. Neither seems to be wrong. They're both true. But in terms of the context of the psalm, I would go with, we're his. That's the point. We belong to him. He's made us. And as our children's catechism goes, he made us, he saved us, he keeps us, because we're his, because he's chosen us. And so, the psalmist is affirming that God made humanity, but he also makes his people in redemption. We are his personally. We are his corporately. We have been put together almost. The, the image that he almost, the psalmist wants to bring to mind is, is, you know, Kendra at the potter's wheel, forming and fashioning a vessel. That God was forming us. And that's really the picture as well that we get from Ephesians 2.10, for it says, for we are his craftsmanship or workmanship in Christ Jesus, and that has that idea of work of art, whether it be a literary work of art, a poem, or whether it be pottery. The idea of God fashioning us, but God fashioning us for a purpose, and that would be that we would walk in the good works which he has appointed for us ahead of time. So, a workmanship, so that we can walk in these things. And this idea reflects the great covenantal promise that we see in Genesis 17, where God promised, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And we see that working its way through the Mosaic Covenant. We see it 
expressed again in the, the promises of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and 37. This is the great promise that you will be my people and I will be your God. I will look after you. I will take care of you. You will worship me. This is the great promise then that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because we do become His people. He is our God. We do worship Him and He does protect us. And so being His people should be something that fills us with joy, fills us with gladness. One of the songs I listened to the other day at the gym was uh, from Delirious and... um, the phrase is, um, we're going to the house of God, are you coming? That joyful anticipation of being able to worship and wanting others to join in. To meet with Him there with you. Because you think it is a great treasure to be possessed by God to be loved by God, to be protected by God. And we see this reflected as well in that phrase, not only are we His people, we are the sheep of His pasture. We are defenseless apart from Him, and yet He has chosen to protect us. He has chosen to lead us. He has chosen to guide us. And we respond with joy in His presence. And so we have been made and kept by God as His people to enjoy His love. Third, maybe quicker, Draw near with thanksgiving. We hit three more commands. Boom, boom, boom. As we have another call to worship that focuses not on the joy this time, but it's joyful thanksgiving. Uh, That we're called now to come and give thanks to Him. And there's a progression that takes place. We're to enter His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We're to enter his courts. Uh, there's joy again. Okay? But there's a, there's a movement. The gate is, you know, on the perimeter. The courts are on the inside. And that is as far as a good Jew could go. You see, the holy place was just for the priests. And the most holy place was just for the great high priest, and he could only go in once a year. And so these people are being summoned as far in as they can go to meet with God and to be thankful, to express their thanksgiving. But let's remember that they're only welcomed that far precisely due to the sacrifices that they made. Without the sacrifices, they're not even welcome in the court. 
But what I want us to understand is that the sacrifices of Christ bring us all the way in. Not just to the court. And the gospel, that's why it talks about the, the temple. Um, now, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, and it symbolizes now the unfettered access of God's people to the holy of holies by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not stuck on the outside of the temple. We're not stuck in the court of the temple. We're able to go all the way in by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's why Hebrews 12 talks about it this way, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. So you're joining the angels in worship, he says. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, because of the sprinkled shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And that should fill us with thanksgiving. We're not outsiders. We're not foreigners. We're not strangers. We're welcome. But sadly, what happens is a sense of entitlement. Entitlement is something that robs us of of gratitude. Coveting often keeps us from thanksgiving. You see, coveting helps us or takes our eyes off of what we already have and puts it on something we think we should have. The best picture I can have I have of this in my brain is smog, the dragon in the Hobbit. He had more gold and jewels than you and I could ever imagine in the large treasure house of the mountain. And he was not content. He just wanted more. That's us. A picture of our greed. Gratitude requires us to slow down and to consider all that we've received. That's not easy work. And it's not just about physical stuff. It's also about the rich blessings we've received in Jesus. For instance, most of us this morning probably didn't wake up going, I get to go to church. I get to worship. I get to be in the presence of God with the rest of his people. But my daughter won't forget the day she met Toby Mac. 
that filled it. I met Toby Mac. Okay, I'm exaggerating. Okay? That is how we ought to be with worship. I get to know the triune God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I get the privilege of being brought here when so many are not. So the wonder of redemption ought to break our hearts so the joy can flow out. Fourthly, gratitude rests on his love and faithfulness. This is the one stanza that does not have a command in it. But there is a logical connector to make it go with the previous stanza, that little word, for. Why do we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise? Why, why? For or because the Lord is good. Not like the Saxons said, because he's powerful. He is that. But he's good. He's not safe, as Mr. Beaver had to say. But he's good. We see that our gratitude is a response to the goodness of God, that not only is He good, but that He does good for us. And this is significant when we think about the gods of the heathens. As Boyce says, they were not good, they were selfish and capricious. Think of Marduk in the Babylonian myths. Why did they create humanity to be slaves for them? Why did God make humanity in the Scriptures? Because God is love. And the perfect love that was enjoyed by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the eternal fellowship with one another overflowed and they wanted to bring more into love. Just as a husband and wife enjoy each other's love and want to share it with children. What you believe about God matters. What you communicate about God matters. And so he goes to good. That good is revealed by God. Uh, you know, we've got to get rid of this notion that goodness is about health, it's about wealth, or victory, depending on how you describe it. But really, ultimately, the goodness of God is revealed in growth and grace. It's good if it brings me closer to Jesus. Makes me more dependent. And we see a parallelism here that takes place in the last two, two little bits there. Steadfast love is parallel to his faithfulness, endures forever, is parallel to all generations. And so his goodness is revealed in steadfast love 
and in faithfulness, but an enduring, multi-generational kind of love and faithfulness. And that should astound us. Psalm 118 begins and ends with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Why? For His steadfast love endures forever. We see this well in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your Faithfulness. And so we see love and, uh, sorry, goodness and loving kindness joined together, and love and faithfulness repeatedly joined together. But they're enduring. God is good in that He keeps His covenant with us, He is. The good father. When we think about a father and think about a father being good, we say that this is a father who is faithful in his love towards his wife and his children. That he consistently gives them what they need. Not everything they want. What they need. God is that. He consistently gives us, out of His fatherly love, that which we need. He is a good, good Father to steal a line from a song. He is a faithful Father. He displays His goodness. And this calls forth the response of gratitude on our part. All right. Last night I finished season one. I don't know if there will be a season two. But at the end of season one, the Saxons defeated the Danes. And what do you think happened? The Danish king became a Christian. But true evangelism is not about being a victorious people, but rather it's about being a people who have tasted and seeing that the Lord is good and that He is good to us in Jesus Christ and then offering that goodness to people who don't know Him. This good is that He takes us for His people. That He keeps all of His promises to us. That He gives us more grace. And so... This, I believe, is how we are to commend God to people. Not promises of success, not promises of health, not promises of fun, but to know the God who is good. Let's pray. Father, it is humbling to me because I know so often I'm tempted to commend you for all the wrong reasons or for the less than best reasons. And Father, sometimes we, 
we struggle to know how to commend you to others. And I ask that you would be at work in us, giving us a greater knowledge of you, of the truth of who you are, particularly your love, your faithfulness, your goodness. And Father, that you would work that in us such that we have hearts that are overflowing with joy and gratitude, that we would be a congregation marked by all of these things, and a congregation that is commending you to other people. That says, come, come to my church and hear of the goodness of God. Help us to be that kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.